Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Last time we talked about idolatry and the nature of idolatry, and it's easy for us to say, well, I don't have a specific idol in my front yard or whatever it may be, but we don't always see that even good things can distract us from God, and we can live our lives uh, desiring to please those things and, and to uh, make sure that we orient ourselves in terms of those idols. And so clearly we're called to worship God and worship Him and be tuned into Him exclusively. No other gods before Him as a reminder of that struggle. But going on now, we move from the first commandment, which identifies one true God, to the second commandment, which now is laying out for us how we worship this one true God. Uh, now in terms of reformed worship, and we, we get the regulative principle from the second commandment, this is where we argue that we only put into worship what is explicitly commanded by the one true God. Now this is obviously something that uh, becomes difficult for us to discern as to what's truly pleasing unto God when we talk about the consequences and the elements of worship. But the reality is we need to go back and ask ourselves, what, what is the purpose of worship? What, what are we doing when we gather together? Uh, so what does it mean to worship our God as the only true God as we come together? So we're going to divide our message into simply two points. We're going to talk about worshiping God exclusively and how we worship an invisible God. So let's begin by talking about worshiping God exclusively. Uh, basically walking through answer 96, uh, the Catechism, as it's laying out the Reformation for us, wants us to note that uh, we like a tangible religion. Uh, if we're honest in, in our preference, it's very difficult to walk by faith. It's difficult to believe that God is really there, that Christ is really walking with us in the midst of uh, trials we go through in life, even in blessings. Uh, so often we take credit for the good things, and get mad at God for the bad things. This is who we are as struggling people. And so the problem we have, and what the catechism's addressing with images, is we're trying to define who God is. We're trying to create God in our image, how, how we see him. And, and we need to remember, it is God who has created man in his image. And so we need to find our contentment in worship Understanding that we are creatures, we are servants of the Most High, and we need to be tuned into His purpose. But secondly, we worship God as He commands us in His Word. Now, again, obviously, there's struggles uh, in terms of how we uh, formulate our worship, what are elements of worship. We talk about the consequences of worship, where some people say there's no explicit command to have instruments. So do we have instruments in worship? Uh, do we just sing uh, psalms a cappella? 
And so these are things we want to wrestle with uh, from Scripture. Obviously, I'm not an exclusive psalmist, and obviously I don't have a problem uh, with instruments in worship. But the thing we always have to go back to is what's the, the simple worship. Basically, what, what the reform was getting at is we don't want worship with a lot of clutter. We don't want to be distracted. Uh, we want to have our attention tuned in to the Lord. We want to worship the one true God. We, we want to be reoriented away from ourselves and tuned into him. And so it's important to note that uh, while we're called to discern what's pleasing unto the Lord, we discern this regulative principle. It's another thing to understand. We're never going to have perfect worship this side of glory. That's just the unfortunate reality of this life and living in a broken world, living in, in a fallen age. Uh, we're struggling sinners. And so it's easy for us to be disgruntled about things, but the reality is we're going to struggle through this age. Uh, there is no perfect worship, but our whole orientation as we join together to worship is to be tuned in to the purpose of God. That's where we want our affections to be um, reunited and, and refocused as we face another week. We prepare ourselves for trials, temptations, struggles, whatever may come our way, even blessings. We want to be reoriented in saying, this is my God, I am his servant. As he blesses me, praise be to God. As he gives me trials or, or difficulties, I trust he will see me through them. Uh, he will walk with me in the midst of it, even as I may not always see it or see his hand at work. I think, honestly, if we look back at difficult times in life, we can see uh, that the Lord was there walking with us, guiding us, and even protecting us and keeping us from going as far uh, or as bad as, as we could have been. And this is where I, I thought it was somewhat significant thinking about Israel. And thinking about Hezekiah and kind of looking at the catechism and the proof text and what Hezekiah does in, in this reform. Because you have the, the context as we go on, Israel apostatizes, right? So you have Judah being tuned into the Lord, Israel's done. They're carried off. And so what's, what's happened? What, what's taken place? We look at chapter 17, we have some of Judah returning to the land. Um, the Lord sends a plague of lions. It notes that some people were devoured by the lions. So it's not that the, the Lord sent the lions and all the people are devoured. But there are some who are devoured. So there's at least enough of a, a tyranny or a fear of my goodness. You know, God obviously isn't very pleased with us. And what I found significant and, and rather important is even Assyria notes that, that there's something supernatural. It's not just that there's hungry lions going around, all of a sudden there's food down here, so these hungry lions just arbitrarily, by coincidence, descend on these people. Assyria understands there, there's something divine taking place here. So Assyria assigns a priest to teach Israel the ways of God, which I thought was rather funny, that you have a foreign nation saying these people don't know their God, their God's obviously displeased with them, so let's, let's send a priest over there to teach them about their God. And so I thought that was rather significant, that they're learning again the things of the Lord. And so as you go on, 
you find in 2 Kings 17, verse 41, where it said, So these nations feared the Lord and also served uh, their, their carved image. The children did likewise, and their children children, as did their fathers, and so they do to this day. So what this tells us, the nations are seeing God as an important God, but there's other gods that, that we worship as well. And so we think, well then, what about Judah when Judah reassembles and, and is brought or, or is here trying to uh, conduct itself before the Lord? Isaiah uh, gives warning about uh, coming consequence. And we think about the, the placement of this. You have Hezekiah, who is a king who's placed as king. He's, he's set aside, he, he's ordained as king, and set in this place. But his genealogy here calls our attention that he's the son of Ahaz. Now Ahaz is probably the king that has done more to lead Israel in the way of apostasy, or Judah in the way of apostasy, than any other king. In fact, we have this record in 2 Kings 28, uh, verse 22, that as he leads uh, Israel into apostasy, he just continues to go down a road, uh, placing himself and, and continuing to give himself over to wickedness. 2 Chronicles 22, verse 22, we have this note that he continues to be more faithless unto the Lord. And so when you say, well, what, what did he do that's so bad? Well, you have this note here that Hezekiah takes down the Asherah. So the implication is it's not that Israel's a variety of Asherahs, you know, as maybe you have Yahweh as your main god, and then you've got your, your little Asherahs that are kind of distributed around where maybe that's a lesser god. Well, what we find with the historic record is that as Ahaz sets the tone of Israel, he closes up the temple door, the implication is that there's an Asherah pole placed in front of the temple, and there's high places, meaning that there's places set apart to worship Baal. So what Ahaz, he's the anti-reformer. I mean, he's leading Judah down into full apostasy, turning away from the Lord. Uh, he's the one who lives up to his name, um, which basically means the one who takes. So what's Ahaz doing? He's taking things unto himself. Uh, Deciding what is right and wrong for himself. So when we come to Hezekiah, uh, the man whose name means the strength of the Lord, we might think, well, hopefully he lives up to his name, that this man is the strength of the Lord. And we have a note here that he's born to Abai, uh, basically short for Abijah, uh, which is his mother. Um, and so this places us with his grandfather, Isaiah. And so we're, we're seeing that he's coming from a line that, that could be questionable. Uzziah was a decent king, but Uzziah uh, kind of trampled into the office of priest, burned incense by his own desire. Uh, and so he's doing reforms, but he's not doing it as a king. He's also intruding into the priestly office. And so one wonders, well, what's going to happen with, with Hezekiah? Is, is he going to be like Ahaz, the anti-reformer? Is it going to be like his father, who's kind of a, a decent guy, uh, but intrudes, uh, or his grandfather who intrudes into, you know, the priestly line and, and goes into the temple and sort of takes authority to himself that doesn't belong? Well, we have this record that he removed the high places. 
So what this is telling us is not just removing idols, it's removing false worship from Israel. He's saying we're not going to worship Baal anymore. This is done. He removes the Asherah pole. Now this is a big deal because if, if we're understanding the text properly, the implication is that the, the doors of the temple are closed and the Asherah pole is placed right where you would enter into the temple, which means we're done with the temple, here's the Asherah. And so when, when Hezekiah cuts us down, he's doing away with, with that uh, false worship as well. Now Asherah would be the goddess who's the mother of 70-some gods. Uh, Baal may have been her husband, may have been a son, depending on the sources you read. Uh, there certainly is a tie there. And so when he cuts us down, he's saying we're not going to worship these false gods. We're only going to be tuned in to the one true God. But there's something else that uh, Hezekiah does that, that kind of becomes a little bit shocking. We can understand the Baals, the Asherah, that's clearly a problem. False worship, we're worshiping other gods that we shouldn't worship. And so in terms of our lineage, this is stuff that Israel shouldn't be doing. Judah should not be doing this. The Lord's obviously displeased with it. But he calls our attention to bronze serpent. Now the bronze serpent is a rather significant thing in Israel's history. Uh, this is a serpent that when Israel grumbled against the Lord, Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, uh, the Lord sends a plague of snakes. Uh, in sending of the snakes, the snakes would bite the people of Israel. They cry out to Moses, complain to Moses. Moses prays to the Lord. So this, this isn't Moses' creativity. It's not Moses saying, well, I got an idea. How about I make this bronze serpent, I put it up on a, on a stick or a pole, and as I put it up on a pole and you look at it, you'll be healed. Maybe God will bless that. No. God explicitly told Moses to do this. So this isn't a, a, a relic that's a figment of their imagination, like the golden calf that they made when Moses was receiving the law of God from the Lord. This is actually commanded by God. And so when, when we look at that, we say, well, why is this image such a bad thing uh, for them to worship? which is where we kind of leave on the cliffhanger, moving into why we worship an invisible God. What, what is the meaning of this? What, what does this imply? Well, the catechism wants us to be reminded, and this sort of makes me chuckle, because yesterday I sat down to eat, and I looked up on the counter, and I said, why is Jesus on our counter? But anyway, it turns out that he came up out of the dirt, and the kids thought it was funny, so anyway, it's discarded. So we're not having religious relics, just so you're assured. Anyway, but going on, back to the point. When, when we talk about this, what, what are we doing? We're trying to make Jesus in our image, aren't we? we? We want him to be a Messiah that we want him to be. And, and we might say, well, don't, don't we want a sympathetic Christ? Well, well of course we do. And, and Scripture's clear, Christ is sympathetic. That's how Hebrews tells us. Hebrews makes that explicit. But he's sympathetic on his terms. And so when, when we're making images of Christ, and when we're trying to define Christ in a way we want to define Christ, this is honestly what led him to the cross, isn't it? Because the Israelites looked upon the Messiah and said, wait a minute, this isn't the Christ that we wanted. I mean, you, you listen to Jewish people debate uh, the historicity of, of Jesus' claims, uh, you know, a true Orthodox Jew uh, versus 
you know, a, a Christian in what we say about Christ. Orthodox Jew would be like, well, this isn't the Jesus that was talked about in the prophets. The Jesus of the prophets was a political ruler who was going to establish the kingdom of David. Really? Is, is that what Jesus says? Right? This is where we have to allow, or we have, I guess not allow, but we really have to demand that our minds, our hearts are conformed to what God reveals to us, what he tells us in his scriptures. And so when we start casting God in our image, we start demanding who God's going to be, we start setting the terms as to how God is going to meet us, we're going to have problems because we're going to find that God doesn't meet us where we think he needs to meet us. This is why we're invited to come before the throne of grace, why we're told to pray to our priest, we are assured he is sympathetic to us. This doesn't mean that we make him in our image. It means we're asking him to conform us to his image. We want God to define the terms as to how we come to the Lord. And so when we worship, we don't want our worship to interfere with that. And so the catechism even addresses the issue of saying, well, what about people who, you know, maybe they, they're illiterate, uh, probably more of a problem at the time of the Reformation, maybe not able to read, uh, may not have had the ability to have the books like, like we do today. I mean, you think about us today, we can buy a book, download it, and read it within seconds. That's not what, what they had in their day. And so the catechism's addressing that issue. Well, well what do we do? Can we draw comic strips about the Gospels? Can we do things to communicate these pictures of these events that happened? And the catechism is saying, listen, we can't minimize the significance of the lively preaching of the Word of God. And so in Reformed churches, in terms of our architecture, this is one of the reasons we have the pulpit in the center of the church. It's not to elevate the minister as a man, but it's to elevate the significance of preaching as a means of grace, uh, informing us, calling us before the living God, hearing his will for us. And so the catechism is saying this is what needs to be the centerpiece and the significance of worship. And so we might say then, okay, well then, when we look at this, what, what do we do with Hezekiah? What, what is uh, the real standard? What, what is he communicating in terms of his reforms? When we make of this king, we find the standard. And we'll get to the bronze serpent in a moment. The standard is an important standard. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This is a very important standard. Uh, when you go in the Hebrew text, you'll find this was pleasing to the eye. Like, for instance, in the fall, when she saw the tree was pleasing to the eye, right? So that's a personal judgment. I, I'm looking at something. I see what that thing is. It's pleasing to my eye. Therefore, I want it. Now, it's not to say that uh, we just acquire things that are not pleasing to the eye or, or whatever. But the point of that is what is the value judgment that's going on in that context? The value judgment is Eve was deciding for herself what was right or wrong. Adam's deciding for himself what is right or wrong. And so, in terms of scripture, in terms of the moral judgments, what are we to understand? We are to do what is pleasing in the sight of God. That's our priority. So when we come together for worship, 
Worship should be calling us, challenging us, exhorting us, reminding us that as we refocus our lives, that we are to live our lives before the face of God. Another principle of the Reformation. We're living our lives before the face of God. Much like we heard from Hebrews this morning with those who walked in the confidence of Christ. So as we go on and we talk about Hezekiah, what's the summary? We, we find in verse 5 a significant summary of Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Right here is, is the epitome of his life. Uh, he's one who truly orients himself in terms of God. And so when, when we have this summary, so he does what's pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, he orients himself in, in terms of trusting God, being confident of God, wanting to walk after his ways and his wisdom, right? This is something that, you know, it's exhorting us, reminding us that, that as we worship God, this is where we should be called and challenged. So it brings us back then, okay, does what's right in the eyes of God, trusts the Lord, and yet he destroys the significant thing in Israel's history. How can he take the serpent and destroy this serpent when the Lord commanded Moses to build this serpent? It's not Moses taking this upon himself. It's not Israel being creative. What's going on here? Well, when Moses makes this by the hand of God... What's going on? Israel's in the midst of, of having another plague, right? The snakes are biting them. They look upon the serpent on the stick. They have life. So in and of that context, that's a good thing. The problem is, as we go on in Scripture, Hezekiah understands that this serpent on, on a stick serves a particular purpose. It's a means that God has used. But it's not God. When Christ speaks of his mission, right? Very beginning of John's gospel. What does Christ say? The son of man must be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. John 3 verse 14. And so the comparison of what Christ is making here is that the serpent is drawing the picture of Christ. It's calling Israel to understand that the pain of the wilderness the pain of a cursed existence apart from God. The pain of not bowing the knee to the Lord. And it's a cursed existence. It's death. But you look upon the one that's on the tree, there is life. So Christ is identifying himself as that life-giving spirit, the life-giving one who's going to come and die. The Apostle Paul also may be making an allusion to this, certainly referring to the the case law of Moses, uh, when he writes to the Galatian church in Galatians 3 verse 13, where the Son of Man is the one who is cursed of God. He is hung upon a tree. And so the point of that is that we're looking to the cursed one. So why is Hezekiah destroying this? Well, because Israel or Judah is missing the bigger lesson. It's not about the serpent. But the problem is Judah's gathering together to worship this tangible relic. And they're being distracted from their God, even though this was a good thing, and God no doubt used it as a means, and it was commanded by the Lord. But the problem is, it was misplaced. 
Judah's looking to the serpent for life. And Judah is not seeing that it is God who comes to his people on his terms and gives this true everlasting life. So Hezekiah is not overstepping his bounds here. As a king, he's not intruding upon the priestly office. As a king, he's making decrees and saying we need to get rid of all these things that distract us from the Lord. We need our worship to retune us, refocus, reorient us in the truth of who our God is. So when we think of this, say, well then, what does all this have to do with worship? Well, we know the Baal and the Asherah. That's clearly wrong, right? I mean, we, we know that uh, as you worship these gods along with the true God, you bring these things into your worship. That's not what God commands. Uh, clearly, explicitly, that's wrong. So Hezekiah is making that decree as a king. But this does teach us something about our inclination as humans and, and why the catechism reminds us not to be wiser than God. Because we, we want to take these, these tangible things and sort of make it and say, well, we're not worshiping this really in the place of God. We're just sort of bringing it alongside of God. You see, God's still the supreme God, but, but I, I just want to make sure that these other gods are, are sort of covered. And that's what's going on here. And, and this is the, the trouble we have with idolatry and also in our worship and, and the struggle we have as humans, that we want the tangible. Uh, we are those who are always looking for something that, that means something to us. And it's not to say God doesn't commune with us. He gives us sacraments. He certainly gives us things uh, that visibly communicate his gospel message. But again, it's on his terms. We think then, in terms of this worship, as we want the tangible, we can think of, of the reality of, of what's going on here. Now, Hezekiah destroys a bronze serpent. We don't want things to stand in the way of Christ even as a bronze serpent is an anticipation of Christ. It's a picture of Christ. It's a model of Christ. And as it's a model of Christ, it's reminding us that we are to look to the true Redeemer. That's the point of the serpent. So the serpent itself isn't necessarily the problem. The problem is that Israel's worshiping the serpent and has named the serpent as another god. And so... This is why Hezekiah destroys this very thing. In fact, when we look at Hezekiah, even when we go through his life and we hear of him uh, being credited as his father David, so you have the line of Judah clearly communicating the Lord's preservation. You have this picture of a Messiah where you, know, you can see where the Jewish mindset says, oh, here's a political figure who's going to politically uh, take over Jerusalem and set uh, David on the throne again, and we're going to have that, that glorious kingdom. You, you can see that until we understand the full picture of Hezekiah and typology. Because we too can take Hezekiah and put him on a throne and say, here's the Messiah. Rather than understanding he's a type of Christ, he, he's reminding us of, of the reform of God's people and, and the reorientation and, and reaffection of God's people for his purpose. Because we know that Hezekiah himself had his issues. If you know his history, you think of Isaiah 39, where Hezekiah 
gives in to his own pride. And he parades these, these Babylonians around seeing his riches and his gold. Because the Babylonians heard that he is one who was sick and he was recovered. So clearly there's something unique and messianic about this man. Rather than Hezekiah saying, this is a, the will of God and is God who has heard my prayer and God is the Lord over death and sickness and it is the Lord who healed me. It's Hezekiah who's calling attention to his own significance. And so when we see that, we find that even Hezekiah and all of the wonderful things he's done for Judah, and, and no doubt, I mean, the, the inspired history of Hezekiah is he was a man basically after David's own heart, a man who truly had his affections on the Lord. But we find he's still fallible. And this is a reminder of even our own worship. That our own worship is we are not, no matter how pure we may think it is or how impure we, it may be, depending where we are um, in terms of geography and what kind of churches we can attend. The reality is, where are our affections? I mean, this is what it's calling us. We'd have the purest worship. But if our affections aren't tuned in to the Lord, we have a problem. Sure, we want to reform our worship. We, we want to bring it in conformity to the Lord's will. That, that is what we're called to do. But we're also called to worship the one true God and to have our affections tuned in to the true Christ. And we have to also have the humility to understand the only perfect church we're going to attain and be part of is the one that is here when Christ arrives and brings us into that church as glorified saints assembled in his presence. That's where we're going to have the perfect church. The goal here is to have our affections tuned into the Lord, to have our worship, I would argue, simple as the second commandment lays out for us so we're not distracted, uh, we're not called away from the significance of God, but to always have our affections tuned into the one God our call to worship calling us into the presence of God, our greeting coming from a God who is from heaven, that God is communing with us, worship or being with us as we worship him. And we think of Peter, and I always marvel at this, of Peter saying that the angels of heaven long to see, almost implying that the angels of heaven, even as we can't see them, are part of our worship. And so we, we need to see our worship as being bigger than just the here and now and bigger than, than who we are. And understand, we are called into the presence of a wonderful, gracious, and yet very holy God. And this is a reminder of what we have here in this text and what the Catechism wants us to see. And so what does it mean then to worship a true God and to worship him in a way that he desires? It means that we incorporate things into our worship that as we look at Scripture, we see that God has commanded us to incorporate. So we, we look at our worship and we desire to have our worship as a worship that is reverent, a worship that has the elements that God wants us to have in this worship, and that we do it in a manner that honors and glorifies Him. We also want to have a worship as human beings that we're coming to this worship desiring to worship our God, that we understand that, that even as we're not in the fullness of glory, 
And, and we're not going to have perfect worship in this age because of who we are as fallen, broken creatures. But yet we come into the presence of God knowing that it is Christ who has redeemed. And as Christ has redeemed us, we have been made worthy to come into the presence of a holy God. So we come here with reverence, yes. We come here with awe. But we come here wanting to worship this God who has redeemed. We also have to have the humility as to who we are as humans. We do struggle. We see even Hezekiah having his struggle. We see how Israel, Judah, wanted to do things that were contrary to God, being inventive and, and creating things that God doesn't want us to do, and, and, and how we can sell it. And saying, well, I still have my God as a top God, and then there's these other gods that, that are there. And, and I still have the top God as my God. And it's a reminder to have that humility. When we come together to worship, we want to be refreshed in our call as disciples of Christ. We are redeemed in Christ. We've been made alive in Christ. It is God who has acted to bring about this new life. We are called into his presence. It is not an honor for God to be here. It is an honor for us to assemble together. We need to realize that. It's an honor for us to be assembled in the presence of such a God. And that's what worship needs to communicate to us. That the great God of heaven who is fully worthy of worship is a God who is kind enough, merciful enough, that he will call us together into his presence to worship him. Let us then be oriented and tuned in to his purpose. Let us desire to do this for his glory, understanding he is a God of redemption. We are his creatures. Let us desire to be a people who want to do what is pleasing in his eye and not our own eye. May we have the wisdom to see what we value in our own eye and not in his eye. And may worship continue to reorient and refocus us to see the one true God who calls us to live our lives before his face as those who have been redeemed in Christ, destined for glory, destined to dine at the heavenly banquet table, worshiping him for eternity. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.